Hello everyone, welcome to episode 712 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. This season we're chatting with the performers of the Cold Wave 7 Festival, kicking off in New York City September 13th through 15th, Chicago September 21st through 23rd, and Los Angeles September 27th through 29th. Head to coldwaves.net for the full lineup and ticket links with pre-shows, post-shows, and a few remaining VIP packages. This week we're chatting with Chicago Empty Bottle pre-show performer Michael Zadarazny. This is Crash Course in Science. Yeah. 
I was in art school and um, I was even in, when I was in high school, I was creating a lot of music with toy instruments and um, really crude um, tape recorders. Basically, it was because those were the instruments that I had. I was really intrigued with like recording things too loud so that they cut out and using different kinds of percussion so that it was unrecognizable and things like that. I kind of developed this really low budget multi-track way of recording on cassette players where I would, you know, ha play a rhythm track on a toy drum set and then play that back and record it on another cassette player. And then there was a, a sense of like decay that was happening from um, each of the re-recording things. Um, so things would kind of degenerate a bit, but it had like a lot of character to it, I felt. I was always writing music and um, lyrics, and I went to art school for painting. So a lot of my paintings were also kind of abstract. And I also did animated films that were abstract, and I did the soundtracks for them. It just seemed like a logical progression. And then um, I was in art school when the whole punk explosion happened. That was really the thing that inspired all of us, the members of Crash Course, was the punk movement because we felt like we could um, put something out ourselves. So Dale and Mallory, the other two original members, were also um, art students in uh, Philadelphia at the same time I was there. They heard a lot of the tapes I was making. So I moved to New York after I graduated to work in animation, and Dale and Mallory started making um, their own tapes using toy instruments. And then one weekend, it was an Easter weekend, I think it was 1979 maybe, I went to visit Mallory and Dale in Philadelphia. We kind of joined forces. We rehearsed together and I learned some of their songs and we learned some of my songs. They were rehearsing in the basement of this bookstore on South Street called The Book Trader. And they both worked there, so we had access to the basement, you know, all night long if we wanted it. And there was another band called King of Siam that was rehearsing in the basement. And since we didn't have hardly any equipment, we were using King of Siam's, like, drum set and <laughs> keyboard and everything. But we were supplementing it with our toy keyboards. And then Dale started to um, circuit bend, which wasn't really a thing back then, but it, you know, which it is now. But he started to circuit bend a lot of our, our little toy keyboards, and then that led to him actually building the instruments from computer chips and um, creating his his own synthesizers because we were using these toy instruments that then became like these homemade instruments. I think that's one of the reason that our sound is kind of raw and sort of has a characteristic feel to it because we're, you know, we're using these, these homemade instruments that sort of have their own personality. So the first record that we did was the Cakes in the Home Kitchen Motors record. It was a bit more experimental, and again, we were using like real drum set and guitars and, you know, anything that we had um, to make music with. We had a little $10 drum machine that we used. Then by the second record, um, when we, we went in to record Signals from Pure 13, 
it was a decidedly darker um, sound. <clears throat> the instrumentation had kind of taken a leap where we were triggering off the homemade gear and um, using slightly better drum machines like the, you know, the Dr. Rhythm, uh, the really early like 55 model. And that was the record that, you know, has flying turns and cardboard lamb on it. When we did that record, it wasn't really fashioned to be a dance record. It was more just that that was the kind of music we were making. So when it started to get, you know, played in the clubs, we were, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised, but I was a bit surprised because I wasn't really sure how it was going to fit in with what was really happening at the time. But, you know, I would be out in the clubs in the early 80s and like Cardboard Lamb would come on or Flying Turns would come on. And it was kind of, it was exciting, <laughs> you know, to be, to hear your stuff like out on the dance floor like that. That was really the beginning of the whole thing. And, you know, eventually Dale, the, you know, the other male member of the band, he, um, he had this big loft in Philadelphia and we built like a rehearsal space in there. And there's just so much material that we recorded there off the cuff, you know, that a lot of it has never really been released yet. A lot of, uh, you know, like I said, Signals from Pier 13 was basically brainstormed there, and as well as the songs that became the Marineland album. Um, the Marineland album, I'll just touch on briefly, was um, something that was recorded back in 1981. It, it wasn't released at the time, and it wasn't even finished at the time. It's the album that has like No More Hollow Doors and It Costs to Be Austere and some, some other uh, tracks on it. It wasn't until Vinyl On Demand approached me about doing a box set that we went back in and found the tapes and, you know, transferred them and really finished that record. I mean, we did have to finish it because it really was, the songs were recorded in such a blurt kind of version they were just very raw and we did perform those songs quite a bit at the time and they evolved but i had tapes of them from our live performances that really showed the growth of the song but in the in the studio version it was really uh, very early when we did the marineland album you know we did finish them off as closely as possible to the way they eventually evolved to but in the vinyl on demand box set, um, he released the um, the demo versions as well as the finished versions. So there's purists out there, I guess, that prefer the demo versions. <laughs> but that's always the case. <laughs> Yeah. 
back in the early 80s and even into the 90s, it wasn't as easy to get stuff out. Later on, you were able to use vinyl on demand, and and there's a lot more independent labels and putting things out yourself. But back then, I'm sure it was a lot more difficult with, with the gatekeepers, since I'm sure you guys were really hard to categorize. So talk to me about some of the challenges in trying to put your stuff out in those earlier times. Well, the first record um, was put out, uh, the single, the Cakes in the Home single, was put out on Go-Go Records, which was Steve Pross and Lee Sammons, or Lee Paris, a.k.a. Lee Paris, were, um, they had a small label called Go-Go Records, and they were both DJs. They were playing um, early Crash Course tapes on the radio. They put out the single, the first single. So that one was a little easier. Our first live performance came about very um, unexpectedly because it was the week that I went down to kind of first start to play with um, Dale and Mallory. We had been rehearsing for like a few days and um, Lee and Steve called and said that Suicide was supposed to play at Grendel's Lair on South Street and um, canceled. And they had already... um, rented the PA. And so they asked if Crash Course would play that night. (laughs) I think it was like that night. (laughs) And um, none of us had ever played live before. It was really hilarious. Like, you know, we did it and um, King of Siam kind of played with us as this other band, the Speeding Slugs, because we were kind of like jamming with them at the time. Um, but I remember for the first song, Bumpster, I came out and I was playing guitar on it and it was very like no wavy kind of thing. And it was the first song of the set and I think I broke like almost all the guitar strings on the first song. <laughs> like, there was like two strings left for like the le- the rest of the set. <laughs> but we still pulled it off and I have a tape of that night. Back in the days, back then, I used to... Uh, even if it was on a little cassette, I would always uh, record the shows, even if it was from the stage, just like laying there, a little mono cassette player. And that's how I got the tape from um, the box set of when we opened for Philip Glass at the University of Pennsylvania Art Museum uh, Auditorium. Like I had just had this little tape recorder sitting on my table, and it was we were going through Philip Glass's sound system, and it was really fun. He liked us. <laughs> it was a good show <laughs> but yeah but it it was true like since we were more fringy and electronic it was for the second record you know lee and steve were managing us and so they got in touch with press records in athens who had put out like pylon and a few other releases and uh they were into it but it was you know that record signals for pier 13 was pretty obscure like you know when it had come out and the u.s release of it you know i guess it did have an impression here in the u.s but what really happened was it got re-released in belgium during the new beat era uh, on ld records and that's where it sort of it made a splash because there was no internet back then, we really didn't realize um, anything about that. We had no idea, actually. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe like 12 years ago or so, when I first started getting um, licensing requests for our songs from people in Europe, that I realized it had really kind of taken off over there. But again, you know, we, we really weren't aware of that at the time. 
it's funny, but it also sounds, you know, sort of frustrating in a way. Yeah. I mean, things right now with the internet, everything is so tied together and you're kind of aware a lot more of um, what's going on, you know, with, with your work. I mean, even though we didn't know at the time, I'm really happy that 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 record in particular, Signals from Pier 13, took off the way it did in Europe, because a lot of what's happening right now for us when we go to play in Europe is because of that. You know, there's certain um, shows that we play where it's an older crowd, like people know us from back in the day, you know, like when we play in Belgium and stuff. Um, we just played at the, if this is the right pronunciation, the Lenti Cabinet Festival in Amsterdam a couple weeks ago. And it was a much younger crowd. They really knew the songs, like they knew the words. And it was great. I mean, and we've, you know, we've played in other cities in Europe, like in Paris, where it's usually like a younger crowd, and they really know the tracks. So I think that, you know, even though at the time, we were a bit unaware of the whole thing, of what was really going on in Europe with us. It's at least nice to know later rather than never, you know. <laughs> you played the Cold Ace Festival in Los Angeles last year, and now you're scheduled to kick things off in Chicago this year. Tell me about how, how playing at Cold Ways was last year and being able to play in, in Chicago, the, the home this year. Oh, it was fantastic. When Jason first contacted me about um, performing, in LA, I was really excited and I looked up, you know, pictures of the theater and it's pretty big, you know, and so I was excited and, um, and it was, in, we were in such good company. I mean, it was, it was just a great experience. I, you know, it, it was really exciting and I had hoped that we would be able to perform, um, in Chicago. And then, uh, you know, Jason contacted me and, uh, and was like, would you guys want to play The Empty Bottle and do the kickoff show? And I was like, sure. We had played The Empty Bottle uh, once before, probably like four years ago. And it's a great spot. So we're excited to be going back there. What else do you guys have planned this year or in the near future? Well, we just got back from Europe a couple weeks ago. We did three shows. We have some other live shows coming up um, we're performing in Philly at Spellbound in uh, early August. And then we're playing this Black Cat Music Festival in um, Washington, D.C. Um, the same weekend. And we've never played in Washington, D.C. before. I've been writing new material and taking some time to record some demos for things. So I, you know, we're going to be doing a few more live shows this year. I'm interested to um, record some some new stuff, some new tracks. We performed in January at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which was a really interesting event because, you know, they, they asked us if we would do a performance there, and they were like, you can pick which gallery you want to be in. And I wasn't able to go to pick out the gallery, but my bandmate did. It was an interesting night. They have a, a series called... I think it's called Final Fridays or First Fridays. And so um, we performed in the gallery with um, the sunflower painting that uh, Vincent van Gogh did. <laughs> that was a great, it was a really fun experience. And Dan Deacon performed the same night. 
And, you know, it's the kind of event where you sort of get sprung on people because people were just wandering through the gallery and then there we were. <laughs> so <laughs> it's cool. That was all I really had for you. Did I miss anything that you wanted to mention or go over? And there was a big gap between like the kind of like the mid to late 80s till around 2009. I mean, we all kind of splintered off and we're doing different kind of musical projects and and things and, you know, had our lives, you know, taking us and our jobs, taking us in different directions. But when there is all this interest, you know, the box set came out and we started getting these offers to perform in Europe. You know, we kind of took it as a sign that, um, you know, it, it seemed like Crash Course sort of had a, a life of its own and still does. I mean, different things keep happening with it. You know, we're active, but um, a lot of the opportunities just seem to be popping up, you know, because I don't know, like I said, it just sort of has a life of its own. We're helping it along, but it's um, it's been a really fun project and I'm glad it it uh, it had like a second life.
On this episode, you heard Some Change, It Costs to Be Austere, and Flying Turns. Crash Course in Science can be found on Facebook. Our opening music is Madmaker by Acumen Nation. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Adam Jones and Sarah Graves from Hex. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, fallen Chicago musician, and soundman Jamie Duffy. Here's Jamie's mom, Pat Duffy, remembering how she would help provide the basic necessities for Jamie's band. Well, you know, I was never going to go up there without bringing 24 rolls of toilet paper because on more than one occasion, Jamie would complain, you know, we don't have any toilet paper. (laughs) What are you guys doing? Oh, we go to the laundromat down the street. (laughs) And cigarettes were so much more expensive in the city and in Indiana, I could get them cheap. That was my entrevue so that, you know, I could make myself welcome and accepted, you know, so I could watch them as they played. They would go to the laundromat to go to the bathroom? Yeah, to take a, you know, number two. <laughs> How far away was it? It was just around the corner. I mean, they had to go through the alleyway, so it's probably like maybe a quarter of a block. <laughs>